find Nehemiah chapter 5, and you should have a study guide tonight. Brother against brother. Nehemiah chapter 5. Everybody got one now? Everybody got a study guide? And there are still others from previous weeks up here. You can come up here afterwards if you don't have them all and pick up one. Okay? Thank you, Mark. Nehemiah chapter 5, brother against brother. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many... So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother." And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say." And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 
Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. The cartoon character Pogo said, We have met the enemy and he is us. Now folks, tragically that is often the case, is it not? In fact, just look at our own nation right now. I don't think I have ever seen Americans so divided against one another as we are right now as a country. It's deadly for a nation to be divided against itself. But what about a group of believers? It's a terrible testimony for believers to be divided against each other. Now, last week we looked at a great chapter dealing with opposition, chapter 4. And what we saw in chapter 4 was opposition coming at them from the outside. Do you remember the, the men's names who were opposing them? Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, they were leading the charge of... Uh, opposition against the Jews. And we saw how Nehemiah and the people dealt with that. And we also pointed out how we know as long as we are walking in the will of God and doing the will of God, we are going to face opposition. We're going to be persecuted. Jesus said so. And the Apostle Paul said so in 2 Timothy 3.12 as well. If we're doing God's work, it is not unusual to face opposition and persecution. And we saw last week how it comes in different forms. Satan himself will attack us. Satan has a demonic army that will attack us. And Satan will use other people to attack us. And so the attacks come at the hands of different groups. And also we saw that the attacks come in various ways. It might be mockery and ridicule. It may be somebody trying to slander us or lie about us. Or somebody who actively raises their hand and tries to do something against us physically. All of those things happen. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So again, looking at chapter 4, we see all of the opposition that came at them from the outside. And when we're faced with opposition from the outside, what normally happens? We come together. It makes us stronger, right? I've heard my mom and dad tell, some of you old timers in here can testify to this, back in the days of World War II, how America really came together during that war. Opposition and attacks from the outside can make us come together. 
Well, chapter 5 presents a horse of a different color. Chapter 5 presents problems from within. Now, I want you to understand the context. After standing against opposition, things were going well. Nehemiah and the people, they have unified and they are working together. And they are staying busy to complete the building of the wall. And now in the midst of that, they're hit with a curveball, aren't they? Chapter 5 is a curveball. What do they find that they are doing to one another? They are hurting one another. And why are they hurting one another? They're hurting one another because of greed. Greed and corruption. Now what we're going to learn in this chapter is how God's people should be treating one another. There should be compassion towards one another in God's family. We're to be different from the world in this regard. The first thing I want you to see with me tonight is a great outcry. A great outcry in verses 1 to 5. We're introduced right away to a crisis in verse 1. It is a crisis brought on by desperate times economically. Now there are about four different groups that are involved that are mentioned here. Now I want you to remember all of these are people who have come back from the exile to rebuild the land. They've come back in different segments. Now first of all there were large families mentioned here who really didn't own anything. And they're having a lot of trouble getting enough to even live a hand-to-mouth existence and get the food that they need. And so that's one group mentioned here. And then there were the lower and the middle, uh, the lower middle class and middle class groups who were having to sell off their land to get enough money to make ends meet. They're having to unload their assets, as many of their assets as they possibly can, just to get money and food to survive. Now, why are they in a famine? A famine's mentioned here. It's believed that they're in a famine because all the people that have come back from exile, they've not gotten everything up and going yet the way it should have been. They've been slow to get their businesses going. They've been slow to get the fields producing and so forth, which now is turning into a crisis. All of these people who have moved back into the land and there's not enough food. There's a famine. And then there's another group who is having to go into debt to pay the king's tax. Some of them are selling off their children to be servants to get money. Now folks, that sounds horrible. And it was horrible. But I want you to remember we've seen this practice before in the Old Testament, right? Children being sold off. You remember the occasion we looked at some time ago? 2 Kings chapter 4, right? The widow lady, her husband was a prophet, he died. Now the creditors are coming after her. 
And she's having to put her children in slavery, in servitude. Now, this was a practice that was tragic, but it was regulated in the Old Testament. Don't think in terms of slavery like we think of slavery today, okay? Don't think of that. Sometimes you would, even, you would sell yourself to somebody else or sell your children. Again, very tragic. But you would basically sell yourself off to them to be their hired worker, to be their servant. And, and you or your children would, would serve that other person or that family in exchange for pay. And so again, don't... Don't think in terms of, you know, slavery where they're beating slaves and all that kind of stuff. It, it wasn't like that, but still a very tragic scenario. And again, it was regulated in the Old Testament. If somebody sold themselves off to another family to work for hire for them, they were to be set free of that after seven years. Anyway, you can see as you read these opening verses of chapter 5, you can see what a sad situation is going on here economically. Now, others in these verses were the wealthy class. And they're taking advantage of all these other groups of people. They're just seeing dollar signs. They're lending their fellow Jews money at high interest rates. And so the rich were getting richer off of all of this. Now this was against the Mosaic law. You could lend a Gentile money at interest, but you were not supposed to lend a fellow Jew money at interest. Write down Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. In fact, we'll read those verses in a few moments. And again, those verses point out that if you're a Jew, you can lend money with interest to a Gentile. But when you lend money to a fellow Jew, you're to lend money without interest. But they're ignoring that. They're ignoring that law so that they could get rich off the backs of the poor. Now folks, it's easy to see what's going on in these verses. The situation in these verses is a case of debt that's snowballing. Debt among the poor that's snowballing. Some of you in here tonight perhaps have been there before. You're in debt and what do you have to do? Go in more debt to pay off debt, right? Maybe another mortgage, maybe another credit card, maybe a small personal loan. And you keep going in further debt to make payments on things, maybe even to make payments on other debt. It's like a snowball going downhill and gaining steam. And pretty soon what's going to happen? You're going to crash economically, right? That's what's going on here. Here are people who have belongings, who have fields, 
who have mortgages and all this kind of stuff. And they're having to unload all that just to get um, enough money to get by on in the day-to-day responsibilities of living and paying bills. And it's catching up with them. Folks, like it or not, we look around the world and we see there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of oppression in the world, right? And a lot of it that's economically driven. It's a sad fact of life. But what made this such a sad state of affairs is that brother was causing it against Brother, you don't expect to read this in the Bible that God's people are doing this to one another. You expect this kind of stuff to be going on in the world, but not brother against brother in the Old Testament. Again, they're just completely ignoring God's laws. And that's the reason for the outcry in verse 1. Now, for the remainder of the chapter, let's look secondly at a deliberate plan. A deliberate plan. Nehemiah determines to fix this. He hears about this. Look at verse 6 again. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He's determined to fix this. And what's, but what's the first thing he does? He gets angry. Is it wrong to get angry? Is anger wrong? No. Not in and of itself. What's Ephesians 4 say? Be angry and sin not. Be angry and sin not. Boy, that's the challenge, isn't it? Most of us end up sinning when we get angry. We, we say something to somebody that we shouldn't. We hurt somebody. We do something wrong. That's the problem with anger. Uh, there's not many people who can handle anger in a godly way and keep anger in check. It's like a fire raging in us. But I think Nehemiah handled it in a godly way. I think what we see here is a righteous indignation. By the way, who else do we see in Scripture expressing a righteous indignation? Jesus. The money changers, exactly. Why, did, why was he so mad? Money cha- Think with me a minute about the concept of money changers at the temple. They, they had a good excuse for doing it, they thought. You know, they're going to offer animals for sale, for sacrifice at the temple. And if you're coming in from, you know, 50, 60 miles away, if you can get to the temple and buy what you need, boy, that's convenience, isn't it? And, and besides, you might bring an animal in from far away and it might not be perfectly without spot or blemish. And so these animals at the temple, they would have been checked by the priest and signed off on. So they would have been animals without spot or blemish. And again, just kind of a convenience thing. That's kind of the way they, they reasoned it. 
So what was wrong with the practice? Say that louder. Thank you. It was in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is as far as they could go in the temple to worship God. The court of the Gentiles couldn't go any further. And what the Jews have done is set up a market in the court where the God-fearing Gentiles who were coming to worship Israel's God, that was their spot in the temple where they could worship. And some of the Jewish leaders had set up a marketplace there. That's what made Jesus so angry. And he turned over their tables and scattered all their belongings. Righteous indignation. Well, I believe Nehemiah is practicing the same kind of righteous indignation. He's angry because his people have broken God's laws. Have they not learned anything after being in exile for 70 years? It's like they've not learned anything. They ended up in exile because they were breaking the laws of God, specifically the Sabbath laws. God carried them away into exile. Here they are back in their homeland and they're ignoring the laws of God all over again. Folks, should God's people not be angry over some of the stuff we see going on in society? Shouldn't we be angry about some of the nonsense going on? Here's society trying to redefine the institution of marriage. When God's the one who defines marriage. But here's society trying to redefine that. Should that upset Christians? Yeah, absolutely. How about life? Society trying to redefine life. And saying it's okay to kill the unborn. Should that not make believers angry? Many things going on in society that ought to grieve us. Should we not be angry? At how we as a people are so divided and that's destroying us. Folks, the problem in the church today, and when I say the church, I just mean the church generic. It's like sin is not bothering us anymore. It's like just, we looked at, oh well. Things going to be this way. We just look the other way. And sin doesn't seem to bother us anymore. Somebody once said the same sin that two generations ago would have enraged the worst of sinners today doesn't even mild, mildly ruffle the so-called best of saints. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The sin that two generations ago would have enraged the worst of sinners 
today doesn't even mildly ruffle the so-called best of saints. It ought to grieve us what grieves God. Again, we've become a church today that's just not bothered by sin. And that's, that's scary if you think about it. Because we're supposed to be salt and light. But the church is not being salt and light anymore. Oh, there's not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. That's a powerful statement in Jeremiah. My people have forgotten how to blush. Hmm. Verse 7 says, I took counsel with myself. Now probably the NIV comes closest to the actual Hebrew words here. The, The NIV says, I pondered them in my mind. Now, I think verse 7 helps point out that Nehemiah's anger in verse 6 was not an ungodly anger. He had control of himself. Instead of flying off the handle, he pondered all of this carefully. What's he doing in verse 7? He's stepping back and pausing and he's seeking God's wisdom. Right? What should we do after getting angry at sin or being grieved over sin? We ought to seek God's face. God, is there something you would have me do about this? Something important to see here, Nehemiah wasn't just going to get angry and let it continue. Too often we get angry about something and then we just go on about our business and and we feel good about ourselves just because we got angry about it. Boy, look at me. Not that I did anything to help out. I just feel good because I got angry about it. Right? And we justify ourselves based on that. But Nehemiah does something about it. He confronts the wrongdoers. Nehemiah commands them that they need to stop this immediately. Now he would have pointed out passages to them like those passages that I've listed uh, in your notes there. Look back at uh, Exodus 22. Let's read these passages, probably some of the very words that, that Nehemiah would have said to them as he confronted them. Exodus twenty two twenty five. 25. 
says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Look over at uh, Leviticus. Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 and beginning in verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. Skip down to verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. And then look over at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Those are probably the words that Nehemiah confronted his people with. Nehemiah gets them to stop their sinful ways. Now, that's the goal of confronting somebody in love. It's to bring about repentance. What does he do? He appeals to their sense of right and wrong. And he appeals to their acknowledgement that they are enslaving God's covenant people. He says, think about it. The Gentiles did that. The Gentiles enslaved God's covenant people. We're free of the Gentiles now. And now you're enslaving your own kin. You're enslaving God's covenant people. You're doing wrong. And so Nehemiah gets them to return the property of their brothers. And he leads them in a public ceremony with, with vows, with priests present. You see, folks, what's happening here? What, what they're acknowledging and what he's getting them to acknowledge is, is it isn't just bad business that's going on. It's that, but it's deeper than that. What's happening is bad religious practice before holy God. There's a theological element involved. It's deeper than just what meets the eye. It's not just moral or ethical. Again, it's that. But it's theological. 
And so what does Nehemiah do? He gets the priest involved. And when they make these vows, the people end up saying, Amen. A collective amen. An agreement. And so to their credit, they are agreeing before God with everything Nehemiah is saying. Nehemiah is showing great leadership here. He's moving people along on God's agenda. That's what a Christian leader does. He moves people along on, towards God's agenda and God's will. Now, I want you to stop and think about something that James Boyce points out in his commentary on Nehemiah. He points out that back in chapter 4, when they were facing enemies from the outside that were attacking them, what did Nehemiah not have them do? What did he not have them do in chapter 4? He did not have them stop work. Exactly. They stayed at the wall. But when Nehemiah finds, finds brother sinning against brother in chapter 5, he himself stops the work on the wall and calls everybody together. As Boyce points out, there is no sense in completing a great work for God if inside the walls of that work people are sinning against God and sinning against one another. Yes. Yes. So sin like this among God's people within God's family has to be dealt with so that God's work will continue and be completed God's way. We don't want to simply do God's work, but we should care about how we do God's work. If we want to finish God's work and get God's approval on it, it needs to be done right. And so when brother is sinning against brother, he stops them and calls everybody together and deals with the sin. Kind of reminds you of what Paul said to the Corinthians, doesn't it? You know, what the world's doing, God will judge them. God will take care of that. But within the body of Christ, we have to deal with our sin before God. Now, in verses 14 and following, you'll, you'll notice how Nehemiah goes above and beyond what would be required. He's raising the bar for leadership. Nehemiah could have gotten everything that the governor had coming to him. And there would have been nothing wrong about that whatsoever. But he decides to forego all of that. He foregoes what was rightfully his. 
He's showing tremendous integrity here. He's not doing what he's doing so he can personally get ahead. He's doing what he's doing because he wants to see the people right before God again. And he wants to see God prospering his people. And so he's going above and beyond to protect his personal integrity. He didn't want anything to get in the way. Paul did that with one particular church, didn't he? Remember what Paul said about ministers of the gospel. They're worthy of their hire. Don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain, right? But to the Corinthians, remember the Corinthians took issue with a minister being paid. And so among them, Paul supported himself through his tent making so that the Corinthians wouldn't have any kind of leverage against him. Yes, exactly. But among the Corinthians, he did that practice because he cared more about the sake of the gospel. So he, he uh, waved off a personal privilege and a right that he could have had with them. And Nehemiah is doing the same thing here. Now there's some lessons I've, I've given you for tonight and I've listed them all out for you. Uh, lesson number one, if you're hurting a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you need to stop. The worst kind of hurt that we can do is to hurt those in the body of Christ. Folks, we are to be an army. An army that prays for one another, helps one another, encourages one another. We ought not to be hurting one another in the body of Christ. How does the body of Christ hurt one another? Well, there's gossip and backbiting like that to go on that I'm so thankful that I don't hear much of here you do hear about it in some church fellowships but that's one way we hurt one another if you're a Christian boss and you have Christian employees don't take advantage of them because they're fellow believers do right by them Maybe in marriage, a husband is hurting his wife or the wife is hurting her husband. Sometimes we hurt those who are closest to us, don't we? Christians need to stop hurting one another. Again, if anything, we are to band together to be an army of being salt and light in the world and if we're going to be salt and light in the world then the world needs to see something different in us Jesus said when the world sees our love for one another that will that will make them desire what we've got second 
Sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ needs to be confronted with the goal being repentance. Third, leadership takes courage. Christian leaders need to confront sin head on. And then lastly, leadership involves being a good example and showing the way. Again, I just think he... I I think he's trying to protect and preserve his integrity at all costs. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like Dan. You think about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. When they tried to find something against Daniel, they, they poked and prodded around looking for something, and they couldn't. And I think Nehemiah is just trying to be the same way. He's, again, he would have been fine taking the governor's portion because for 12 years he was their governor. You know, if anything, he's worse off than he was with being Artaxerxes' cupbearer. Uh, but again, look, look at verse 19, what he ends up saying. Remember me for my uh, good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He wants to be able to stand before God one day and receive his praise from God and not from men.